Welcome to Short Course, episode 110, for September 22nd, 2023. I'm your host, Ben Barry. This is a week now out from the North Carolina section match, the Carolina Classic 2023, and as is tradition, I figured it'd be good to do a, a sort of wrap-up episode, talk about what went well, lessons learned, and so on. So I got a bunch to talk about. I will leave all the topics specific to Chrono and how I ran it and what we saw and all that. I, I think that'll, I certainly have enough uh, for an episode without that. And I, I will be covering that next week. So that'll be a separate episode. So this one is just generally the the sort of match administration and things that we found. So I'm not saying anything here is necessarily original. There are a few things that I know or think is we, we started, but I don't, think we're necessarily unique in in any of these, but I just want to cover the things that went well in case people want to take the example and either follow it or adapt it for their own match. It is worth mentioning, so this is the fifth year that Stephanie has been section coordinator, so this is her fifth North Carolina section match that she has co-match directed, and this is the third year that we have had a child. And so um, once again this year, grandma came in clutch and she was actually watching both kids this time. In fact, she was watching our three month old. That was the only the second time that she had had him overnight and the first time that that she'd had him at her house overnight for four nights. And so that was pretty legit. So props to her and uh, we couldn't have done it without her. So there are always those invisible folks that aren't necessarily seen on the range who make being on the range possible. So much uh, appreciation to her. And obviously we've, we've communicated that directly, but I think it's worth mentioning. So the schedule for the North Carolina section, the way we've been running it just because this is the way it was when, when we took it over in 2019 is to do setup day on Thursday, the staff shoot Friday, and then we do a Saturday AM flight. So nine stages in the morning, so basically eight to noon, eight to one, something like that. Uh, an afternoon flight, so one to five, one to six, depending on the, the scheduling in, in that particular year. And then a, a Sunday all day, typically starting around 10 a.m., going until about three in the afternoon. And the, the squads on Saturday are typically a little bit smaller to accommodate the the tighter schedule. So something like eight shooters, where the Saturday, the Sunday squads are slightly larger because you have a little bit more time and you you want to get people through. So for me, I when I had a chance, I actually have only ever shot this match as a competitor, I think twice, 2016 and 2017, when it wasn't at... So I worked it 2013 through 2015 when it was at Sir Walter, and then it was at Rowan 16 and 17. It was canceled due to the hurricane in 2018, which is how Steph ended up as section coordinator. And then... All those years. So the, the two years that I did get to shoot it as just a regular competitor in, in 16 and 17, my preference was to, to shoot it on Sunday because I did like the little bit slower pace. You have a little bit more time between your stages. Just a personal preference thing. I know for some folks being able to drive in Saturday morning, look at some stages, shoot in the afternoon and drive home. There's a there's a sort of unique value proposition to that, which I totally understand. But that's uh, that's the, the general schedule. Uh, setup day was went very well. Uh, this is my my personal biggest regret from last year was the fact that we, because we had some folks that 
couldn't stay for staff day, we ran a squad of shooters Thursday, a squad of staff folks Thursday. And that basically meant that the whole debugging phase of build day was cut short. So the stages were legal. They were fine, but they could, they, they were, in my opinion, quite unpolished. Uh, in particular, not that anybody cares, but if you go back and look, stage two was the one that I had designed, and it turned out as much more of a memory stage than was originally designed. And there were certainly some things that we could have done to ameliorate that, that, that we were not able to. And then stage nine, which was uh, designed by Jared Heinrich, a good friend of mine and you know fellow stage designer at, at Sir Walter, that one ended up getting set up both with something of a goofy start position that that basically meant everybody was backing up into the RO, uh, but also the there was a, a more significant than it needed to be 180 issue with the way that the ports were set up that again could have been addressed if if we'd had a little bit more time. So that that was that was sort of my main hesitation, my main regret. And this year, luckily, we had plenty of time to address that. I I did not personally get to look at every single stage, but I know that uh, the range master Gary McConnell he was he was looking at a number of them. Uh, some other folks were were looking at those, but there were I think about five of them that I was able to step on, including the stage that I designed, the one that Jared had designed, as well as a, a few others, and just look at them and sort of say, okay, how can we how can we make this stage? Yes, it it might follow the diagram. But on the ground, is this stage imperfect? Is there a way that we can make the shooting more interesting? Typically by just breaking up positions, making it so that there wasn't any one spot where you were shooting 10 rounds or so. And I think there only ended up being really one place in the match where you the, the, the best stage plan, if you had a high cap gun, was to just shoot 12 rounds from one position. And if I'd gotten a chance to look at that, that one stage, you know, perhaps we could have done something about it. But... I, overall, that that stage, even on that stage where you could shoot twelve from one position, I ended up there was a there was a fairly viable plan where you just shot ten and then went to another position and you could you could pick up the other target that that the high cap guys could take from that first position. So, I think the stages, in my personal opinion, I think they were they were better than last year. Last year's weren't terrible, but I think they were definitely the there wasn't any stage that had that that sort of memory stage component to it which again I really found myself kicking kicking myself about and just in general I think personally I think the the stages were quite good um I, I think they were they were a good blend of of all the all the different stage designers in the state the only you know if I had one complaint is that they were all very straightforward so the not a ton of movers no one-handed shooting, no low ports, no medium ports, nothing really kind of no technical challenge like challenges like that. It was all very sort of straight up field course type shooting, which was fine. It it could have if there was one thing that could have been better, it would have been, hey, you know, maybe we add a little, you know, we take this port and we make it a a medium or a low port or something like that. But no, that that's a pretty pretty minuscule thing. I think the stages were were fine. The setup itself again went went quite good. We had 14 people, give or take. We had 14 people there for setup day. So we were running basically three crews of three to four people. And we had a couple of runners with the, the carts distributing barrels and walls and wall stands and that sort of thing. So that obviously made light work. Basically, we we set up nine stages, and so each crew only had to set up 30 stages or so. And I think we started around 
eight or so, and the the building was basically done around noon or one p.m. And from then on out, it was just range master debugging, and he was kind of debugging as things were being built. So if he could catch things early, he would. And then otherwise, just sort of competitively looking and saying, okay, if we add a barrel stack here, then it turns one position into one and a half, that kind of thing. And so that, again, I I, I couldn't be happier with, with how that went. For staff day, the something that we did last year on Friday that we expanded a little bit more this, this year was the idea of having embedded ROs in the staff squads. And I, I think other matches, I've heard that other matches have done this, but it, it really did make things better for the, the folks shooting on staff day. So basically the, depending on the squad you had, the, the squads that were more heavy on actual staff where you had more CROs and ROs, they ended up having one person dedicated to just run the timer for every shooter all day. And then for the squads that were more mixed between staff and competitors, because we did, we did open those Friday squads to competitors. If for whatever reason they wanted to shoot on Friday, some guys it's easier for them to take a Friday away and, and shoot the match versus getting a Saturday or Sunday away from the family. So our, our Friday quote unquote staff day was a mix. I would say 40, 10, 40, 20, something like that of, of competitors and staff, but it was, it was really good. I, I think it worked well. And having those, those embedded ROs, it's a tough day for them, but then they basically got to pick a schedule which schedule on the weekend they wanted to shoot and so they were able to shoot with you know whether that whether it was friends that were shooting on the weekend or uh you know a squad of people that they're sponsored with something like that and then so they worked friday shot one of the the weekend days and then worked as a as a staff member on one of the stages the other day of the weekend so that that setup worked really well i think that th- there's really no issue with that if anything, the, the the main complaint was there there were a few folks that actually wanted to volunteer for that that we actually needed working the whole weekend. But if it if it's to a point where we can actually spare two people for each staff squad, so you have a dedicated timer and tablet person for each stage, and so the competitors on Friday, or the staff and competitors on Friday are only having to paste and reset the targets, and basically otherwise they can have a little bit more time. In between shooting because they're not having to hot potato the timer and the tablet around all the better so that definitely worked out well the one thing that i mean there's, there's really no other way around it but uh for me i definitely did have a, a bit of a rough staff day just because we did the the way the schedule is we started staff day from 8 30 to 10 30 you could come to chrono at any time and get do a chrono and equipment check because you know the rules say everybody everybody gets chronoed staff included which you know as i've as i've discussed i think a a random chrono selection method even among the staff i'm not i'm not saying staff are exempt but uh, i think a random sampling method would be better but you know that that ship has sailed for now the rules say every competitor has to be chronoed so that's what we did and it took it took a good solid two hours to get every every competitor and, and staff member on Friday morning chronoed, which was fine. Everything, once we got going, everything, everything was running well. I just, I just forgot. It didn't occur to me. I just assumed somebody was going to come and drop off a tablet so we could start chronoing folks. And I didn't, I didn't go out of my way to proactively secure one. And so there did end up being about a 15 minute, 20 minute delay for us getting started, which set the whole match back, which that's just on me. I was just, 
I was so focused on getting all the equipment set up and just, I was just assuming, Hey, someone was going to roll up on a golf cart and hand me a tablet that I didn't go out of my way to make sure that, that, that was, that was being provided for. So, you know, one of those things where it was just, I assumed somebody else was doing it. Somebody else probably assumed I was doing it. And so just, uh, the little things that, that never go quite right. But once we got rolling, it seemed like everybody was making good time. We, we didn't end up being particularly late for the the staff dinner, which happened on the range after the shooting concluded on Friday. So everything went went pretty well there. And then the rest of the match was a, a typical, fairly uneventful North Carolina staff reset match. I, I'll say, you know, I've talked a lot before on the podcast before about staff reset. I, I in part, it's just a, a tradition around here. When I worked my first match, in 2013, I went to the state match and it was a staff reset match. Of course, we didn't call it that. It, nobody nobody had a term for it. It was just the way the North Carolina match was run. And it just seemed obvious to me that that's the way big matches should be, just in terms of getting shooters through more quickly. Everything that we've talked about in the past about reasons that the staff reset is, in my opinion, advantageous. But I'll make three points that came out of the, the various discussions that we had on the range and at the staff dinner and and so forth among among the staff and with some of the competitors there's sort of three nuances that that I don't know that I necessarily had had made before that I think are worth talking about the first one is the idea that in a staff reset match you have a, a, a rung on the ladder for people interested in getting involved in the sport who aren't necessarily ready to run a tablet or a timer and basically at a, at a match where you have, say, two staff per stage, one guy running the tablet, one guy running the timer, maybe they flip-flop, but the expectation is that basically both of them are certified CROs or ROs, they know how to call all the, the various safety issues, and they're, ideally, they've, they've both been through the class and they've, they've had experience. That is, that's a reasonable setup, but there's, there is a gap there. And when I think back, like I was saying, to 2013, when I shot my first North Carolina section match, I volunteered to work it just because the range was half an hour from my house. I figured, why not? It was the first big match I'd, I'd shot, and I I wasn't certified. I hadn't taken the RO class. I, I didn't know anything about running the timer, and in fact, I never did. Now, part of that was because I was, <laughs> amusingly enough, uh, on a stage where Paul Hendricks was the CRO, and he ended up holding the timer and never letting anyone else touch it for reasons that if you know Paul Hendricks's name will be somewhat obvious but I I just showed up and I got to shoot on staff day which I thought was cool because I got to shoot with a bunch of other staff and they helped me understand things and I learned from them and then I just worked the Saturday and Sunday and I reset steel and pasted targets and got to talk to the other guys on staff I got to talk to the the competitors on the range it was it was a great introduction to me as someone who hadn't taken an RO class yet, but it obviously lit the fire that that I wanted to take that next step. And so I do think it's interesting that in a staff reset match, you have that tier for people who haven't yet either been able to get to an RO class or for whatever reason, their life hasn't lined up with it. And, and we have one at least once a year here in North Carolina, but I know in some areas of the country, it's, it's more sparse or you have to drive a further distance. I know there are some candidates for, for office who've taken a flight to get their RO class to be eligible to, uh, to, to serve on the board. So I, I just, I think it, it was interesting that I, even though I had lived it as someone who worked my first match before I was certified, 
we had some folks this time in there in particular there was a, a couple a, a husband and wife who have a number of kids i think four kids and they left them with their grandma which is awesome and uh, they were able to come out and kind of work the match as uncertified folks just helping to, to paste and reset they both shot together on staff day but they got to kind of do this as as a as a husband and wife team something they could do together but because we had this role for people who weren't necessarily certified who couldn't necessarily take a timer and ideally you know may not even be taking the tablet or having you know someone else watch for the offside safety issues even if even if someone uncertified was on the tablet having that rung having that spot in the match for them i think is good in terms of building the flywheel in the sense that it's it's somewhere to get your toes wet to get started in volunteering without having to first spend a weekend get certified and do all that and i know you don't have to be a certified ro to to work a major match i i know that's true but people tend to want to do it and so having this opportunity to come in at this intermediary tier where you're not even certified but you can see how a match runs you can see how a stage runs you can learn from the cro on your stage tips and tricks you can start to see when they call things in between shooters, in between squads, you can ask, hey, like, what, what were you doing there? Or why, why did you make this ruling? What was the issue there? You can get that on the job training, which honestly, the RO class doesn't necessarily give you. I think actually having worked a match, especially under a good CRO who is who has the heart of a teacher and is, is willing to pass those things along, I think can actually jumpstart you and definitely primes you for when you take the RO class, you're going to absorb more of it. So I think if you were going to chart out a perfect path, an ideal path. It would be something like working a, a level two match as an uncertified person and then taking the RO class just so that when you do take it, you again, have that context. And so that's something that that staff reset matches have more capacity for where a, a traditional staff uh, competitor reset match where you, you're really only looking for maybe two staff per stage. There's less room for that. Um, someone else, this is, I promise this is not my point. Someone else made the point that people talk about competitor reset matches being, you know, in the quote unquote volunteer spirit of the sport or that staff reset is, you know, in violation of the quote unquote volunteer spirit. And, uh, and, and they actually made the point to me, which I had not thought about this, but it, it got me chuckling that when you, you can only volunteer something if you actually have the option to withhold it. Right. So taxes are not volunteering. Charity is volunteering where if you don't give to your local homeless shelter, no no consequences accumulate to you but if you don't pay your taxes consequences happen so that's not volunteering right if you go to a match and you do not and, and it's a competitor reset match and you don't paste and reset it might be slight it might be social but there are consequences and so calling that volunteering is it's a little bit emotionally manipulative in the sense that you don't act you can't volunteer something that's not your choice and i get it when you sign up for a for a competitor reset match you are signing a social contract that says in addition to paying my match fee i i will help paste and reset i'm not saying that that's unfair or immoral but it's not volunteering it is you are just agreeing that not only are you going to pay your match fee you will pay a an additional price in labor to participate in the match but don't call that volunteering i I just thought that was an interesting take that i that i had not heard before and then the the third thing that um some people were commenting on that I, I definitely appreciate and think is a, is worth pointing out is the fact that a, a staff reset match like this in a lot of cases can end up being a, a destination. It can be a, a get together where if this is the one match a year 
where you and all your buddies can come together, well, you actually get more time to hang out and be together on the range because you're not doing the, the, the pasting and resetting. You're not having to spend that time going up and down range. And so for the folks who want to make this a destination, not necessarily because they're trying to win their class or trying to win the match, but just it is a, a place to get together with people that maybe live two states away, but everybody can meet in the middle and shoot a match like this on the same schedule, something like that. There, there's a benefit there in the sense that it's more of a communal atmosphere versus, okay, I, I got to load my mags. Oh, let me get your phone. I got to video you. Okay, that guy's videoed. Let me go sit down. Let me, you know, drink some water, eat some jerky. Okay, time to move on to the next stage. And you sort of don't, you're, you're shooting the match with your buddies, but you don't actually have that downtime to really make it a, make it a bonding experience. And so, again, it, it was something that, that was pointed out to me that I thought was kind of an interesting take that I hadn't really thought of before that 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 is that is another benefit of a of a staff reset match a few other items that i wrote down so uh, once again the the prize table was done in order of registration so when you checked in you got to walk the prize table and once again it was it was split into sort of a high value low value prize table and the people who were selected for the high value prize table which i think the cutoff was like 50 or 75 bucks so, you know, things like $100 Blue Bullets gift certificates versus, you know, $50 or $25. The the high dollar ones, it was just randomly selected. So when you checked in, I think, you know, one out of 10, two out of 10, something like that, people ended up walking the, the high value prize table. Everybody else got to, to walk the low value one, but you still had this opportunity to walk the prize table and pick something that was useful to you. So you, you didn't have this issue where as a as someone who buys factory ammo, maybe you get a gift certificate for a bullet manufacturer or as someone who has a uh, who shoots clocks, you end up getting a holster for M&Ps or something like that. So the the prize table was laid out, and you could look over it and decide which prize was was of most value to you. And that's that's something we've been doing for five years now, and I think it's I think it's been working. The it is a lot of work in the sense of all the prizes have to be inventoried and then divvied up into roughly quarters. So a quarter was for the staff, uh, and then a quarter for Saturday AM, quarter for Saturday PM, and then Sunday. Not exactly quarters, because I think you know Sunday was the biggest schedule, but roughly speaking, divided into into four roughly equal or proportional parts. So I, I think that works well in terms of, especially as a as a match where you don't really control what the sponsors are going to send you, and it's really tough to give it all out people that are actually going to use it especially when it's stuff like left-handed holsters for or holsters for particular guns gift certificates are always easier to to give out because you know someone can always just turn that into cash from someone who can use the, the certificate and in a lot of cases those are the ones that go first but the, the the fact that everybody had a had a roughly equal shot at at picking something that was of value to them because the prize table was replenished between schedules it seems to be the the least bad way. It's certainly way better than just randomly assigning every prize to someone. And as I've mentioned before, one of the benefits is you end up looking at all the prizes and then picking one, but you still see, oh, wow, this person sponsored, that person sponsored. So you, as a sponsor, you get a lot more eyeballs on your prize versus something like a, like a random draw where the only person who knows that you sponsored the match is the person who randomly draws the item. So I think it's a, a relatively good system. I'm open to better, but from what we've seen, it's it's been working, and I, I think it's I think it's a, a something that'll continue. The other thing that 
we had done, had done last year and continued this year was what Nathan Carter of Shooting Sports Innovations has called the diverging diamond numbering pattern for stages, where basically if you look at the stages all in a row, they're numbered, what is it, 1, 9, 2, 8, 3, 7, and then all the way at the end, you basically have 4, 5, and 6 all next to each other. The benefit of this is basically since every time you're moving stages, you're skipping a bay, but basically halfway through your 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 day, you get to the end of the, the row and you start doubling back. What it ends up saving us is having that long move all the way back from stage nine back to one, which historically we would solve by just having people, we'd have typically two people with golf carts, just shuttle people from nine back to one. And it that works, but this is the second year that we've done this this numbering pattern, which is definitely dependent on having big, clear number signs for your stages so people can see, okay, I'm going from one to two, which actually means skipping nine, or going from four to five, which actually means skipping six, that kind of thing. So it's if you, you really need the, the flags or some kind of clear way to label your stage numbers so that people can know when it's time to, to skip and, and where to go next. Other than that, uh, once again, for for the staff, so every year there's a, a a stipend to the staff, so everybody gets a certain amount. I think it's something like 150 bucks, 100 bucks, something like that. And then everybody who's more than 50 miles away from the range gets an additional amount. I think it's 100, 150, something like that. So I think it's the the people who drove in from out of town got a, a check for 275 per person which obviously if you're able to split a hotel room with another RO, that basically covers your gas and, and your hotel, so you're not out of pocket to, to be staying at the match. Uh, but then on top of that, every year we try and do some kind of unique and useful staff gift. In the past, it's been a zippered Shooter's Connection gun case that was that was monogrammed with the, with the, the logo and the year and, and the fact that it was staff, and we still see a, a fair number of those around. This year it was a... We, we, we wanted something, you know, more kind of generally useful in life, but that you might also bring to the range. And so in this case, it was a, a little, it's a brewmate drink cooler. So it's basically a double wall thermos, except you can put uh, either 12 ounce or 16 ounce cans in there, but it also has a lid where you can use it as a coffee cup. So, you know, as, as the old saying goes, it keeps hot things hot and cold things cold. But what was nice is the one of the sponsors, one of the, the local folks is Make Stuff Better, Brian Wolf and Matt Wolf, who do laser engraving and, and laser marking of things. And so working with them, it was actually gave us a little bit more latitude to, to customize things. And uh, they were actually able to what I think was absolutely awesome. They were able to individually laser engrave the name and years of service marked by uh, a little bullet. So the people who and, and the, the only the, the rec. Steph only had records going back to the five years that, that she's run the match, but the folks that had worked all five years that, that she's worked it got a, got a little mug with the, the match logo and the year, their name, and then five little bullets. And then obviously if you'd done four or three, two, then anyone, anyone who'd worked two or more years got a mug engraved with, with their name and the, the years of service. And then everybody else just got a mug engraved that just said staff. And that was something new this year. That, that was the idea is just a, a, a little way to, signify and recognize the people who have now consistently worked for five years in a row because those are those are the folks that are that are the backbone of this match and you know we we wanted to have a little something extra for them and then logistically the the only other 
notes that I have here. One was we did have uh, Bill Duda from Go Fast, Don't Suck. He is not traveling and working as many matches as he used to. So last year and maybe the year before, but definitely last year, he had driven down, brought all of his equipment and down to the Wi-Fi network and the tablets and the timers and everything and, and basically had had given us all the equipment to to run all the electronics at the match. His his thing now is that he's got a, a Pelican case that he'll ship you with the the timers, the batteries, and the tablets. And the the timers are a bunch of AMG commander timers that sync to the tablets and they're all numbered, so they're already paired and all that. That setup was awesome. I know people always like having the the splits in practice score competitor for for looking at things. And in fact, I know there was at least one shooter who, even after he had hit approve, saw on practice score competitor that there was a, an anomalously high time. It was like, you know, five or six seconds or whatever after after his last shot. And he went to the RM and said, hey, I, I don't think this is right. And the RM was like, yep, that's good. As long as you agree and the, the RO agrees, we can we can amend it. I believe that's what I heard. Um, I wasn't there for it, but it, it's one of those times where having that extra little bit of detail can actually get to a correct score without say requiring a reshoot. So thanks to bill for, for sending those. Uh, and he actually did end up showing up and, and shooting the match as well. But I think that was sort of a last minute thing. And, um, I think he was able to just take all the equipment home with him, save himself a, a shipping label. That's my understanding, but it was, it was good to see him, but you know, it was also nice to, to have that equipment for the earlier days of the match before he got there. So that worked out well. If you're looking to run a, a major match, definitely reach out to Bill, see if you can borrow that setup because it's, it's all packaged in a, in a neat Pelican case, just comes right to you. And especially if you don't have the the commander timers or a Bluetooth timer that, that counts the shots, I think that's a, that's a real value add if you can have it for the, for the competitors that are interested in that kind of thing. And then the, the last thing I have here is just that we did actually end up getting a, a fair bit of rain on Sunday, which mostly was uneventful. I, this is one of those places where I think staff reset really does shine. When you have staff, they can just, you, you, you just get wet and you stay wet. You're not worried about keeping your gear dry and all that. You're just, you're out in it. You, you put on your rain jacket, you put on your rain boots, whatever it is. But then if your socks start to get soaked or whatever, you, you're not, you're not very, you're not really worried about it the same way as if you're trying to stay dry and, and avoid pasting unnecessarily as a, as a staff squad, you can still keep resetting your stage. We were having to deal with the bags for a few windows when the when the rain was falling. Uh, thankfully, Gary McConnell had brought some some waterproof targets and waterproof pasters that we could use on the movers, which worked on the movers that didn't have any kind of hardcover, which one of them did. The the bobber had a, a significant amount of hardcover painted on it, which that's you know people ask, oh, why don't you just pay for the waterproof targets and use them? And and that's really the main downside is. The, the fact that they're basically impossible to paint. I've heard different people having different solutions. The best one I've heard is you just get wide, either black painter's tape or duct tape or something. Yeah, I guess painter's tape probably wouldn't hold up in the rain. So you'd probably need something waterproof like duct tape or gorilla tape. And you just have to basically put strips of that anywhere that, that you want hardcover. And potentially you can just cut the rest of the target off past the the non-scoring hardcover border if that leaves you if whatever the hardcover arrangement leaves you with enough to as long as it leaves you with enough to staple the target up but that's that's the main downside of the waterproof targets is you can't really paint them and and so if you're using painted hardcover you're you have limits there and again there are all kinds of solutions around that but but we were just not really set up for that so it's definitely something that we're looking into for next year 
if for no other reason, then almost by definition, having that will mean we won't get rain for another five years or whatever. But that was uh, that was the main issue. As far as I know, though, in terms of uh, traction or footing, the only issue and, and there was, you know, some some competitive equity issues. There was a balance beam that I mean, it wasn't huge. I think it was a I think it was two by eight, maybe. So it was, it was a pretty wide beam. You could get your whole foot on it. You weren't really having to balance per se. But if you, you know, it was easy to, you had to get sort of sure footing on it. And so when it got wet, it was just uncoated wood. And so there definitely was some slip sliding on that on, on Sunday. And that, you know, something, something to look at in the future, maybe add some grip tape or something like that. But it, it definitely was a, a learning experience in that sense. But other than that, it seemed like everybody dealt with the rain relatively well and things kept moving. And even with, I think it was three, periods of rain and periods of putting the bags on and then taking the back off. We ended up finishing right on schedule, getting to, to start teardown. Teardown went great. Everybody, you know, all the, all the staff were able to get everything pulled up to the, the mouth of the bay. And then we drove around with trucks and picked up all the barrels and walls and, and put them away. And folks were able to, to grab their checks and hit the road and, and hopefully be home before, you know, depending on how far you had to drive, but before seven, eight, nine PM. So another great match. Like I said, I, I have some more stuff to talk about next next week about the the chrono stuff specifically and sort of what went well, lessons learned on that side of things. But overall, I genuinely think that this is the the best match yet that that we've managed to put on from just applying all the lessons learned of the past few years. Obviously we we learned a few things that we'll be applying to next year. But yeah, this this was it was it was a good match. Hopefully, if you have any questions or anything that, that you saw or you want to know more about, shoot me an email. I'm happy to share anything that that we know or any or send point you to, to someone if it's a question I can't answer. But yeah, really happy. Everything it was a ton of work, as it always is, most of it by people, not me. Yeah, I'm not trying to say, you know, thank me for my service here. But it, it was it was definitely something that was not easy, but it was definitely worthwhile. I think everybody involved felt a, a real sense of satisfaction and the response online has been really positive so far. So hopefully that's uh that's a good sign. And hopefully next year, so this was actually the first year out of the five that the whole match has sold out, which I think part of that, it probably the, the biggest thing is just ammo prices have come back. So all the factory ammo shooters can afford to just buy factory ammo and, and come shoot it. And so that, 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 that really helped, but you know, I would like to think it's also the word is getting out that this is, this is a quality match and people are coming from further away. I know we had one guy come from Texas, um, one guy come from Kentucky that, that I'm aware of. And so, you know, we're definitely pulling people from more than just a a one state radius around Luigi Lee flew up from Florida to, to shoot it. So it was, uh, yeah, it it was really, really encouraging to see the word get out and and people willing to travel and, and come shoot our humble state match. And, uh, yeah, just thanks to everybody involved and a job well done. And hopefully if you're listening to this, you can join us next year if you weren't there and hopefully we'll, we'll be able to reproduce the formula and put on a, another good match. If, uh, if everything goes well, once again, well, that wraps up this episode of short course. If you want to get in touch with me, my email is Bennett Talk to you next time.